would be great if you could turn back to Romans 16. Thank you, Sue, for reading it. I love giving a reading to somebody who's got uh, a few unusual names to uh, manage to pronounce, but well done there, well done. Romans 16, so you come to uh, the end of your uh, series in the book of, of Romans, and we entitled it this morning, Living with Church Tensions. Fact is, whenever you put two people in a room together, you have potential for tension. When you bring a church together, you have so much potential. But it's not that kind of tension that we're going to be really thinking of this morning. It's actually the tension of trying to hold together two things which are both important but can seem almost contradictory to one another and so they they have to be held in tension with one another otherwise to go one way or the other is actually unhealthy for instance you may know or have children uh, who are kind of getting into sport and you can imagine one parent and we won't say which it is who says winning is everything. And the other parent says, having fun is what matters. And if you go for one or the other, you're probably going to end up uh, in a bit of a mess. The reality is it doesn't have to be a choice between the two. If you can hold the two intention and recognize that winning is important, but having fun, taking part is, is important as well, then that's good. But if you use words like that is winning is everything, then of course you, you can't have attention because you, you said that trumps absolutely everything. And we have to be careful of words like that because they will drive us to an extreme and, and make us think there's only one thing when actually we've got a hold at least a couple of things in tension with one another. Now, tensions, it seems to me, strike us right between the eyes in this chapter. For instance, you see, this epistle is seen by most as probably the, the loftiest document that we have uh, in the New Testament that, that details in the most magnificent terms and with great detail uh, how we are saved, the way of salvation. It is probably the nearest thing we've got in the New Testament to what we might call these days a systematic theology. It's a, it's a fairly systematic presentation of the way of salvation, beginning with man's sin and the law uh, and then salvation through Christ and so on. So it's the nearest thing we've got to a systematic theology. And it, it's, very, it's very objective. It's, it's very much uh, a letter that could have been sent to, to, to any church. And yet suddenly when we come to this last chapter, we have this string of names. I want to greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. So-and-so is easier to say than the names are in, the, in there. That's why I'm using that. But I don't know whether you listen to radio quizzes ever, uh, where they have people phone in and they say, is there anyone you want to say hello to? And some seem really caught out by it and go, uh, and others, they've written 
their Christmas card list out and they say, I want to say hello to blah, 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 blah. And it feels like Paul's doing something like that here. He's gone in this great lofty description of magnificent truth and then says, oh, by the way, I want to say hello to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And there's all these greetings and what, what, a, what a strange mixture. So much so that for some people, they have said this chapter wasn't written by Paul. This has been added on later by somebody else. I mean, there are 22 occasions when he says, greet so-and-so. There are 35 names in this chapter. Most of them we know nothing about apart from what we have in this chapter, which is almost nothing. They are kind of nobodies. They're just ordinary folk that he sends his greetings to. But the idea that this doesn't fit with the rest of the book, with the rest of the letter, is only true if you refuse to live with one of the three tensions we're going to look at this morning. The first is this, the tension that church loves both high God-focused truth and mundane people matters. That's the truth. There is a tension that in reality, the church loves both high God-focused truth and mundane people matters. As I said, the letter is full of high truth, sin, law, justification, propitiation, which hopefully by the end of this series, you know exactly what that means. Uh, How we conquer sin through sanctification, glorification. It talks about suffering, the place of Israel, election as you looked last week and more recently coping with differences of opinion within church all of of those things have been dealt with high lofty truths and this chapter itself is no different although it's dominated by these 35 names and 22 um, greetings nonetheless when you get to the end verse 25 now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, we're still there, aren't we, in high God-focused truth. You can spend weeks unpacking what is contained in those three verses. It's, it's high and lofty stuff. And yet, alongside that, you've got all these greetings. So mundane, by comparison. You might think, if you lean towards one end of the, this tension... It's just out of step, out of keeping. It doesn't belong here. But we must hold the tension. We must love great truths, high and lofty truths. Truths that stretch our minds. Truths that, 
that, that at times causes us to, to discuss and debate and be unsure and to explore further and try to understand better. Truths that aren't necessarily in an obvious way practical from the word go. It's not like truths that are just like how to deal with anger or something like that. Truths about Jesus. Truths about the deity of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Truths about the eternal and the work of the, the atonement and the work of the Spirit. Truths about the eternal purposes of God. But at the same time, holding the tension, we must love mundane people matters. We shouldn't be embarrassed by time being given to people. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Those words are as much the word of God, inspired, expired by the Holy Spirit, breathed by him for us to hear, they are as much the very word of God as any of the high and lofty truths about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that you've looked at uh, through your times in Romans. These names, these people represented by their names are honoured alongside great, high, lofty, God-focused truths see the fact is with God everyone matters everyone matters it's right down to the detail according to the Lord Jesus that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from it being in the will of our heavenly father and how much more value are we than a sparrow we matter to God Therefore, if we're made in the image of God and are being remade in the image of God through the work of the Spirit, we need to mirror that. Everyone should matter to us. Uh, and what happens if, if, if these things aren't held in tension, this tension that the church should love high God-focused truth alongside loving mundane people matters? Well, if you just focus on the high God-focused truth side of things, you're probably likely to become a, a kind of doctrinal elitist who will fall out with anybody as soon as you have a disagreement about a particular understanding that you have of the scriptures, and you'll care little for anybody. What will really matter to you is that your doctrinal I's are dotted and your doctrinal T's are crossed. On the other hand, if you, if you just uh, 
love the mundane people matters, it's highly likely that you're going to become apparently loving towards people, but but lose gospel truth. And the danger there is that actually the gospel truth, the high God-focused truth is the only hope that people have. So if you really love them, you've got, to, you've got to love that too. You've got to care about that too. So it's a very loving thing to care about the truth, to care about the gospel, to care about high God-focused truth. So this is a tension that we have in the church. We need to live with this tension in church of loving both high gospel truth and mundane people matters as well. Secondly, there is uh, the tension that church is both global and local. You see this tension again played out in this chapter. There is the global aspect there's the global aspect uh, that runs through, through the letter, the way that this is truth that has been taught from chapter 1 through to chapter 15, that, that is truth for all times, for all places. It's not a different gospel for Europe to Asia to Africa or anything like that. And um, Paul's emphasis has been about taking the gospel to, to Spain. He wants to visit Spain. He wants the, the, the Roman support in that. Chapter 15 uh, has, has mentioned that. The world's in view. But, but it comes out again here in chapter uh, 16. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept for long ages, kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So this revelation of great gospel truth is for all nations, not for one nation, not for one continent, but for all nations. It's a global gospel. The church has a global emphasis. But then there's a tension with the reality that church is also Local. This is the letter to the church in Rome. Okay, a very important city at this point in history, the center of the Roman Empire, but nonetheless, one locality, one locality in the world. It's a letter to a group of God's people meeting in one city. But then the focus gets even more on the, on the local, where all these greetings are given that are incredibly localized. Look at verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Sancria, if we can have the map up, please. Uh, Sancria was the eastern port town of Corinth. Uh, if I had a portrait, I could show you. 
pointer. Uh, so there's a red ring basically in the middle of the map there. There's Senkria. And she's travelled uh, up to the top left of the map, that circle there, uh, which, which is, is Rome. She's, she's travelled from one locality to another to, to convey this letter, it would seem. That's most likely uh, what we've seen. The map can go now, thank you. Uh, and she's come from there, but the 26 people named in verses 3 through to 15, they are in Rome, another locality. Uh, and though Paul has travelled widely... He knows these people. He knows these people by name. He's met them in various places. And so he sends greetings uh, to them in this very personal and localized way. In verses 21 to 23, he reverses it rather than sending greetings to people in Rome. There are eight people who are with him who send their greetings through his letter via Phoebe to the church in Rome. There's localized things going on here. And that gives us attention. Attention in the life of the church, where the tension needs to be held that church is both global and local. And that can be difficult, a difficult tension to hold on to, because to be honest, the global needs and the local needs are big enough to taken separately to take all our time, all our money, all our attention, all our effort. But we can't choose one or the other. To be a healthy church, we've got to hold in tension the reality that church is both global and local. Global mission matters. The local church matters. The needs of the suffering church in various parts of the world matters. And we need to care for both without, without apology, not pitting one against the other, not getting obsessed with one over the other. Holding the needs, the cares the priorities of both the global and the local intention with one another. And then the third tension that church needs to live with. The church has both lips and teeth. This is the more cryptic one of the uh, headings. But I wonder if you, if you noticed the lips and the teeth. Let me show you the, the lips. The culmination of the greetings that are, uh, are just like a battering ram of greetings from verse 1 through to verse 16 is, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's the lips. The lips of the kiss. It's the culmination of all these greetings. It's an expression of, 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 of deep affection and warmth that the church is a loving community the church is not a social club the church is not a group of people who just happen to have a, an interest in common with each other we're not the stamp collectors club or something of that order the reality is actually though that many clubs that gather around a particular point of interest can actually be quite 
loving and caring of one another. They get to know one another. They get to be committed to one another. How sad when such clubs can have more love in them than the church. The church has so much more reason to be deeply committed to warm love and affection for one another. We are one in Christ, redeemed by the same blood, sanctified by the same spirit, equally recognizing that we are all fallen sinful creatures and in need of God's redeeming grace. We're heading to an eternity together. We have every reason to love one another. There may be things we don't like, but that's a bit different. We are called to love one another and to love one another in a way that can be sincerely expressed. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I love what Stuart Olliot has to say on this uh, little verse. He says, the whole atmosphere which permeates this section, and that shows that it's not just verse 16, it is verses 1 to 16. It permeates this whole section is one of warmth and sincere affection. It was the spirit of the early church. And, and was to be expressed in the way they greeted each other with the holy kiss. The holy kiss, he says, may not appeal to 21st century readers. It may to some, it might not to others. And it can be argued that such a form of greeting was determined by the culture of the time and place and should not therefore be imposed on the churches of Christ in other cultures. Did that give you the get out clause you were looking for? Probably. Bertie's not finished yet. But if our greeting of fellow believers is less than hearty and affectionate, we are certainly falling short of what scripture requires of us here. So depending on your own cultural preferences, your own cultural ways of greeting, doesn't matter the detail of it. What matters is the heart of it, what's, what's really in it. It should contain warmth and a sincere affection. It should be hearty because that expresses the deep love and commitment we have for one another. We are called to be a loving church. The other get-out clause we could be in danger of using is our greetings are affectionate, but otherwise we're pretty cold or maybe even mean. Clearly, the scripture fundamentally calls us to love one another in a way which is then rightly expressed in our greetings to one another. Scripture knows nothing of a superficial greeting where of 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 affection and love when underneath there is all kinds of malice the greeting is the icing on the cake let's make sure the cake is good cake loving cake hearty affectionate cake so there's the lips what about the teeth well the teeth come in the least favorite passage in the book it's really just a few verses verses 17 and 18 Give us a good summary. 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. There's the teeth. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Are the churches called to hearty, affectionate love that is seen in our ways with one another in our greetings? When it comes to those who cause divisions, the church needs not lips, but teeth. Teeth that say, this is really important. The unity, the love that we've just been talking about is so important that if you are bent on disrupting that, you have no place here. Divisive people are to be avoided when they are bent on destruction. Now, that is not the kind of person you were talking about last week, where there's a difference of opinion, maybe the session before on chapter 14 as well, where, where you've been talking about differences of opinion on valid matters. We should be able to contain those with love and grace. But when somebody, it's not just having a different opinion, is bent on being divisive, then teeth are needed. The problem with these people are detailed in the end of verse 17 and verse 18. They cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Such persons are serving their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. They're the people to watch out for. Now the translation we have here in the English Standard Version and equally with it some commentators focus on one particular angle and say that these people are being divisive over doctrine. That word doctrine is there in verse 17, and it's a good translation, but the problem is the word for 100 years or more is frequently used in the Christian world in a rather narrow way about what we tend to refer to as doctrinal issues. Say the deity of Christ, the resurrection, election, and all kinds of things like that. Whereas the word in the New Testament doesn't have usually that limited sense. It just means teaching. So in the NIV or the New American, you have the teaching which you have learned. And that's important because it's not just causing divisions and creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine. Like the only thing that matters is doctrine. Because if we use that word teaching, we remember that Jesus taught a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That matters as well. That's part of the teaching. It's not something we'd normally call a doctrinal issue. 
And that's why I think it's healthier to use that broader word, teaching. Contrary to the teaching, all the teaching. And so the focus is on people who just want to cause division. They create obstacles of one sort or another. They're serving themselves, deceiving the naive. It's here that we need teeth. Teeth that says those people need avoiding. Now, as I say, this is a tension that is really difficult to hold. Lips and teeth, love and discipline. This is, this is challenging to be filled with love for people, yet be willing to discipline by avoidance those intent on division. But it's apparent that God, by his spirit, inspired this. Paul didn't see it in any way contradictory. You know, this writing comes from the pen, as it were, of the same apostle. It's inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And the fact that these two things aren't opposed to one another, even though there's tension in, in, in trying to handle them both, but, but they're not opposed to one another, is highlighted by the fact that, do you notice, you see, in, in your Bibles, the headings are not inspired. They've been added to help us, and they often do us a good job. But do you notice, really, Paul doesn't miss a beat between verses 16 and 17. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. To the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. Th this is all basically in one breath. They're right next to each other. They don't contradict one another. Because if you love the church, if you love God's people within the church family, when there's somebody who is intent on causing that church family harm, being divisive, then you will want to protect the church from those intent on causing its harm. And that will need avoidance. So does this seem a strange way to end this great epistle? Well, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is tying up loose ends, pulling together things which, if not tied together, may look to be at odds with one another. But the truth is that church loves both high, God-focused truth and mundane people matters. The church is both global and local. The church has both lips and teeth, and we need to live with these tensions in the church. We're going to sing uh, together as we 